Well, good morning again, you guys. It's good to see you. Before we get started, I want to say a word of thanks to you guys for last week. Um, I got up here and talked about the need for kids' ministry help. And those of you who have known me for a number of years know that I've been in, in ministry for quite some time. Um, I've been in full-time ministry for um, over a decade. And I can't tell you how many times on a Sunday morning I've gotten up during announcements and asked people to help in kids' ministry. Uh, I've lost count. Because if you've been in church for a while, you know that this is a common need. And I don't think that I've asked for help in kids' ministry and transform except for maybe a couple of times. And I really can't remember a time prior to last week. But I'm assuming I've asked for people to jump in and volunteer. And last week when I got up here, I said we needed about five to six people. And that will usually take you about six months to fill. We filled it in one day. I want to say thank you to you guys. Do you realize what a blessing it is to be in a church that is so willing to serve? That is so ready to jump to whatever task it is that's needed. You guys, I believe it's the health of the church. It's the health of even what BJ talked about with how hard Ellie works in the kids ministry and how all the parents here know that their kids are well loved in the basement. That they are taking care. I know. (laughs) Saying that out loud. You know, I used to use that as a selling point in my youth pastor days. That was a selling point. I used to tell kids in the high school all the time, they'd be like, oh man, I can't come into church. They'd be like, come in the basement. And they would. They'd show up and be like, I don't even have to go through the front doors. I just go down this little cavern and this guy preaches for an hour. And I would. But you guys, here, here's the thing. It is such a blessing to be in a church where people jump at the opportunity to serve. We filled it in one week. I just want to thank you guys. That's such a blessing to me. It overwhelmed me. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to be here. Um, I don't deserve to be a part of a church like this, and neither do you. You're welcome. You guys, God has gifted us each other. We are a gift to each other. Serving together, being part of the body of Christ is a gift, and I'm so thankful for it. I hope you guys feel loved and appreciated. Um, yeah, and I'm not going to get any more emotional, I promise. Or make any more comments about how we keep all the kids in the basement. <laughs> this morning, uh, we begin a four-week series that has taken months of preparation um, I don't often do this, as you know, most of the time I'm teaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, um, but every now and then I feel like the Lord impresses it upon me to go in a different direction, and so what we're going to do for the next four weeks is we're going to do, um, we're going to be working our way through a series entitled Praying and Praising, and the hope of this series for the next four weeks is to inspire some regular rhythm within our lives of intentional prayer and sincere praise And we're going to do, the way we're going to do this is we're going to look at four different prayers and or songs in scripture. And we're going to be looking at these individually, going through them line for line, and to look at the example that they set for us and how they teach us to pray with great depth and praise with all our hearts. Paul, speaking of the scriptures in 2 Timothy 3.16, including verse 17, says this, and you're probably familiar, but we need to begin here. All scripture is inspired by God. And is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
And I want you to notice how verse 17 ends. We go to the scriptures, we go to God's word, not only to be taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained, it's so that we can be completed and equipped for every good work. We are equipped by the word of God, amen? You are equipped for what God is calling you to by his word. And while we humbly approach the word of God to be trained and equipped by him, what we also want to do is seek to creatively live that out with the gifting that he's given us. We've all been given gifting. And what we're longing to do is to live that out, creatively live that out, and express his heart through those gifts. And so as I mentioned last week, every week for the next four weeks, we're going to introduce a new song. Uh, Our worship team has been working on these for months, and we've been writing songs for these passages of Scripture. And they're response songs. Some of them are reflective, but these songs are intended to stir the body to really think about what we see in Scripture and how we can apply it to our lives. There's going to be some original artwork on screen that Dakota's drawn. This is an original art piece that she drew for this. If you guys didn't know that Dakota is a great artist, now you know. Um, she, she's drawing or sketching or, or working with coloring and, and different types of uh, renderings of these passages of Scripture as the Lord ministers to her as she studies through them. And we want to put that on screen. And here's the point, you guys. We're doing this to inspire you all to creatively express the truth of God's word with the gifting he's given you. Notice that with the gifting he's given you. I can't do that. It's not my gifting and that's okay. And I want to encourage you guys to look for the ways that God has gifted you and put that into practice in living out a gospel centric lifestyle in the eyes of the community and in the eyes of the church. Are we using the gifting God has given us to express what we see in Scripture and to rightly express it? Not just what it does in our lives and stirs us up to do, but for what it truly says. I encourage all of you guys to engage with the living Word of God. I encourage all of you to allow the music and the artwork to encourage you to apply it to your lives and to live it out loud. And this morning, the prayer that was on my heart to begin this series with months ago was Nehemiah chapter 1. And so I'm going to ask you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 1 in your Bible this morning. And this is our aim in this text. We want to see, and there's many more things in this. You could mine a great many things out of these passages that we're going to be studying, but these are the characteristics of Nehemiah's prayer that I want us to adopt into our own prayer lives and to be impacted by here this morning. The four characteristics are these. Humility. Confession, petition, and commissioning. That should be on a slide for you to look at as well. You guys, I believe these characteristics are so important to a healthy prayer life. I think they're modeled for us not just in this prayer, but in other prayers in Scripture. And these are not exhaustive. There could be more, but I want us to learn and apply these things to our own prayer lives. That we adopt a pattern or characteristics in prayer of humility, confession, petition, and commissioning. And I'll explain what that looks like as we work our way through the text. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 1. For context, we're going to read the whole passage. We're going to focus on the prayer, which is verses uh, 4 or excuse me, verses 5 through 11, but let's read the whole chapter just so we have the context together. Nehemiah 1.1 reads this way. These are the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. During the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, 
Hannah and I, one of my brothers, arrived with me from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down, and its gates have been burned. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. And I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. This is from the word of the Lord. For context's sake, just so we understand what's going on in this time period, if you're unfamiliar, uh, let me give a, a brief overview of this book. This should take about an hour. Good, you're listening. In the Hebrew Bible, Nehemiah was part of a collection called the Writings. In the Hebrew Bible, the Writings were two books that were towards the end of the Hebrew Old Testament. And what was contained there was Ezra and Nehemiah in one volume. Uh, they were a combination volume to be read together, part of the historical accounts of the Jewish nation that followed exile into Babylon. Uh, it's a com companion text with the book of Ezra. I mean, it was together with it. And I want to kind of outline what had happened in the nation of Israel up until this point. We know probably pretty well that the monarchical reign, the reign of the kings of both the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah has failed. They fell to the idolatry of the people groups around them. They did horrible, detestable things. And God had told them, as Nehemiah, Nehemiah mentions in his prayer, if you do these things, I'll scatter you. And so God does just that. And the way that he did that is Nebuchadnezzar invaded the southern nation of Judah. And the, nation, the northern nation of Israel had fallen to the Assyrians before this. But Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah three times. 605 BC, which is where Daniel was most likely uh, taken into exile. 597 BC and the final time in 586 and that's when the temple was destroyed that's when Solomon's temple came down they destroyed it raised it to the ground in 539 BC 66 years after he was taken into exile Daniel then interpreted the handwriting on the wall just to give you a time marker for that that's in Daniel chapter 5 and that night if you know your history Cyrus captured Babylon without resistance by stopping up the river and coming underneath the causeway into the, the city of Babylon. He took Babylon without a fight. In 538 BC, Cyrus issued a decree that allowed the Jews to return home from exile. Then in 536, and in between 536 and 515 BC, exiles that had returned construct a second temple, but this second temple is not really up to snuff, if you will. It's, it's a far cry from what 
the original temple that Solomon built was. It's nothing like the former temple. In fact, they wept when they looked at it and said, wow, this is really terrible. You ever finished a project? (laughs) This is not what I envisioned in my mind. (laughs) And your wife's like, it's great. You come home the next day, it's burned to the ground. I don't know how it happened. It just burned. So in 458 BC, Ezra the priest returns to Jerusalem. He's there to bring about a uh, reinstituting um, of worship there. And if you know a little bit about Ezra, you know that he was technically the high priest. He came from the lineage of Levi, and he was the high priest at that time. And that brings us from 458 to 445 BC, which is the, where, the year that Nehemiah's account here begins. So hopefully that was on the screen. Oh, yeah, good. Okay, so that was all behind me. That's where we are. Now imagine, now put yourself situationally. Let me say this, in Nehemiah's shoes. Put yourself situationally where he is. Not only the place that you loved, Jerusalem, but the people that you love there, the exiles who have returned back to Jerusalem, are in duress. Things are not going well. His brother Hanani comes to him and says, listen, it's not good. Things are bad. And if you know anything about the ancient world, in ancient times, without a wall or gates or any way to defend your city, sitting duck, you're going to get taken apart. You are undefensible. Horrible things are happening. If you read farther into Nehemiah, you know that social justice becomes a big issue here. They're selling their own children into slavery to pay off debts. Things are happening in Jerusalem that should never happen amongst God's people. And whatever it is that Nehemiah sees here, he hears about the walls, he hears about what's going on, and we know that down the road he'll become the governor of Jerusalem. There's a lot of things that need to happen there. There is a burden here. Things are very, very wrong back home. And here's Nehemiah, the cupbearer of the king, hundreds of miles away, feeling powerless, feeling broken. Nehemiah's concern is completely understandable. The people really are in a terrible place. How does Nehemiah respond? When he's in a situation where the people he loves are far from him and in danger, what does Nehemiah do? Let's start with the first characteristic of healthy prayer. He goes to prayer, that's true. But the first characteristic is this, humility. Because before he even prays, look at verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. He starts by being broken. He starts with humility. Before he even comes to prayer, he postures himself. This is getting in deep. This is breaking his heart. Not just brokenness before God, but expression of helplessness, of sadness and mourning. It's not something to hide or pretend that we're better than or that we don't experience. We're not meant to wear masks or gloss over when we're in duress. We're meant to show it. We're meant to live it out in reality and in truth. We don't want to be hypocrites pretending like everything's fine. That misrepresents the Lord to the world. When we act like we have it all together, that we don't have any troubles in our lives. No, they need to see us for who we are. They need to see us in our brokenness. Now, I'm not saying promote your brokenness as to get attention for yourself. Don't hide it so that you can give the glory to God when he heals you. When he walks you through it, when he takes you from this point to the other point, you're like, that means that it's all going to go away. No. Sorry. 
What it means is that you, people are intended in this world to see our brokenness and see God's faithfulness through it. To see that what we're going through is part of God's redemption in our lives and that we are being sanctified and getting stronger through the process. We don't have to fast and weep every time we pray. If we're praying as we should, we certainly shouldn't fast as often as we pray. Hopefully you die. I mean that in the best possible way. Um, but you understand what I'm saying, though. Like, if, if you're like, I pray, like, all throughout the day, then don't fast every time you pray. Right? Eaton's for the living. But you guys, <laughs> for some of us, we made a living at it. <laughs> but here's the thing. We have to be careful to not pray without humility. And, and let me say this. Sometimes fasting is in order. And if you're like, I can't, I have low blood sugar, or whatever, that, that's fine. There, there are things, there are things, sorry, okay, a quick story. I had a cohort of worship leaders, you probably heard this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. We, I had a cohort of worship leaders with me back in 2014, we were part of a worship school, and years later, we stayed in connection with each other. So, a few years after the cohort ended, I was talking to the guys through this group chat, and we're all over the place, Texas, Michigan, Florida, Washington, like all these crazy places, even Oregon. <laughs> hey, it's okay. I'll be in Oregon tomorrow. Um, here's the thing. I'll survive. The, the guys, as we were talking, we were talking about like four of the six had never fasted when they prayed. They'd never like taken a day and fasted and, and just committed themselves to prayer. I was like, well, you guys should do it. It didn't go very well. And I was shocked by this because in my immaturity, I didn't realize that for some of these guys, this may not work with their bodies very well. And so one of the guys who is a worship leader in, in Spokane now, like, calls me up. I was like, how did the fasting go? He's like, weird. He's like, I went to the bathroom, and I didn't quite make it to my destination in there because I passed out and, and was on the floor for, like, three hours. And I was like, why did your wife wait three hours? Do you have a problem or something? Like, is that? But anyway, he was like, he's like, I was there for, like, I just passed out. I couldn't take it. You guys, maybe we need to fast in different ways. Maybe a good fast for you if you can't fast. Like, I encourage, like, if you can to fast from food. But if, if you want to fast and pray, maybe if you can't do it with food, shut your phone off for 24 hours. Maybe unplug your TV. What is it that's your, your go-to for comfort? What's your go-to for distraction? Take it away and spend time with the Lord instead. Now that's fasting. You guys, we need to be doing these types of things because in that humility, in that place of I am going to deprive myself of something that distracts me in order so that I can hear the Lord, you are disciplining the physical for spiritual benefit. That's the goal of fasting. You are disciplining your physical body for a spiritual benefit. I want to hear the Lord clearly. Nehemiah is broken. He fasts because he needs to connect with the Lord. He needs to talk to God, and he takes it seriously. And part of fasting and, and the morning process for the, for the Israelites was to, to be in this spot of like, you, you, they talk about wearing sackcloth and putting ashes on their heads. It's this, this posture of being undone. I'm broken, and I need to sit before God because I need his help. We need to be careful to not pray. Church, I'll say this. Let us be careful to never pray without humility. Let us never pray in arrogance. Why? Because Psalm 138, 6 says this, and this bothers me. I don't know if you guys know that, but lots of times the scriptures bother me. 
That means that they're convicting me. Psalm 138.6 says, Though the Lord is exalted, he takes note of the humble, but he knows the haughty from a distance. The haughty of the prideful. He knows them from where? A distance. God is distant from the prideful. He takes note of the, of the humble. We need to pray in humility. Speaking of the Lord in Proverbs 3.35, Solomon agrees. He mocks those who mock, but he gives grace to the humble. That's repeated in the New Testament as well. He gives grace to the humble, but he's distant from the prideful. Even though he's not present with his people in Jerusalem, Nehemiah is in turmoil and suffering with them. Paul reveals how this should be the reality of the church as well. This isn't just your relatives living far away from you. He says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. He's saying this, you guys are connected to one another. You guys are connected to one another, and you guys need to remember that when one of you is hurting, we're hurting. When one of you is is having an awesome week, we should rejoice in that because we are all connected in this way. And we're a body. That's exactly what a body is. If you don't believe me, stub your toe. Your whole body responds. My wife purchased a piece of furniture from Satan. Maybe some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. This is like a a little table, a thin table that has sawhorse legs on it. So the surface area of the top is this big, but the legs are that wide. They go out. Do you know how many times I have hit my toe on that table so hard it was black for a week at one point? And we'll hear it every now and then somewhere in the house. Conk. Oh! And someone goes down. Like someone in the house just made a a real connection. And you find out what you've been teaching your kids because you discover their English. You know, what what comes out of them. Like, he's a pastor. We're not saints. Here's the thing. (laughs) I'm sorry. There's no excuse for that. Tyler, we're editing that one out later. Okay, so you guys, there is a reality to when the whole, when one part of the body is hurting, the whole body is in pain and is suffering for it. You guys, We're connected to each other, and we need to humbly come in our time of prayer on behalf of one another as well. Because if our brothers and sisters in Christ in third world countries are being put to death for their faith, then we are hurting too. So let us pray for them. If we have churches that are broken and suffering and going through horrible circumstances, then we are hurting too. And we need to pray for them. And we need to come in humble prayer. And here's the thing. Not just humbly... With weeping, mourning, fasting, Nehemiah comes. They're all appropriate for his situation. Nehemiah comes as well, and he does something else. And this is the second characteristic I want us to note. Look at verse 5. I said, the Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess 
the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Yes, the second thing that he does is confess. Confession should be a characteristic of our prayer lives. He refuses to remove himself from the sins of his people. Even though he has come with a humble heart, he has come with mourning and weeping and fasting, and he's in this place of humility, he comes to God, he still confesses his sin. He still owns his own brokenness. It's interesting because there's another character close to this timeline in history that did the same thing. It was Daniel. Daniel's one of those characters in the Old Testament that you really don't see anything negative about. You don't really read about, you know, like, like with Abraham. You know, Abraham had this faith that was so powerful in God. And yet, you know, whenever he gets around a guy that has a lot of power, he starts telling him that his wife is his sister. You know? And he made a great other, you know, many other mistakes that we could talk about. But when it comes to Daniel, we look at the life of Daniel, there's really not anything there that would make us look at him and be like, wow, Daniel really messed up. He needed to get right with God. However, we know Daniel wasn't a perfect man. We know that he had sin in his life, and Daniel was aware of it too. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 20, he's praying, and he says, While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my petition before the Lord my God concerning the holy mountain of my God, he then has this vision. But you guys, Daniel came to the Lord, and even though he had represented God very well in exile. He confesses his sin. He is aware of his own brokenness. When we pray for our nation, church, do we include ourselves in that prayer? And not in a positive way, but with contrite and broken heart because we recognize that we are not without sin and we have contributed to the sin of this nation. It's a biblical thing to do. It's a biblical thing to do for us, church, to confess our sin and where it's brought our nation. And I absolutely believe all the way down to my table broken toes that if we are going to see a revival in this nation, if God is going to do it, it's going to begin with the church recognizing its own sin. It's going to be with us confessing our own sin humbly coming to God and crying out for him to intervene because he is faithful and good. We start with our own brokenness. If there's something in, the, in us that immediately wants to defend ourselves and argue that we're not part of the problem, you look at the nation and go, I don't do anything those people do. We're part of the problem. That immediately is like a flag that goes up. We have to return to the first characteristic we just learned, and that is that we need to be humble. Because immediately when we say, I'm not the problem, they are pride. It's a pride issue. That's a pride issue in me when I look at other people and be like, I can't believe you made me sin like that. It's a terrible, terrible thing to do. Right? No one's running up making me sin. I sin because I have an evil heart. I sin because I'm in a struggle with flesh and I need the Lord to renew me and cleanse me again. If we do not admit our own sin, we are prideful and I don't want the Lord to look at me from a distance. Remember Psalm 138, 6? I'll read it again. 
He says this, though the Lord is exalted, he takes note of the humble, but he knows the haughty from a distance. I don't want my pride to distance the Lord from me. So in humble recognition of my own contribution to the sinfulness of my nation, Lord, I confess that I'm part of the problem and I need you. Andrew Murray said, humility is nothing but the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. Humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. I love that. Humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. Let us seek to do that daily, moment by moment. Nehemiah recognized the power, the sovereignty, and the faithfulness of God to those who love and obey him. And as he humbles himself, God's eyes see, his ears are attentive. The Lord is listening. We know this because if you're like me, you've cheated and read the rest of the book. We know the Lord's listening. He comes with humility. That humility leads to confession, and confession aligns our hearts with God's. When I confess my sin, it aligns me with him. It recognizes that what I have been doing or what I've been thinking that is not a part of him is wrong and sinful. And it puts me in the path of walking according to his will. So many people wonder if they're in the will of God. I wonder if we've confessed. I wonder if we've been broken of our sin. Once that confession aligns our heart with God's, then we can make our petition not from a place of selfish desire or false piety. We're praying the word of God, agreeing with every word he, he has said and every desire of his heart. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. Did you notice this? Nehemiah prays scripture back to God. Not accusatory, just saying, I believe you. I trust that you will do what you've said you will do. This is the third characteristic of Nehemiah's prayer, petition. Look at verse eight. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. And Nehemiah says in verse 10, they are your servants and your people. You redeem them by by your great power and strong hand. Nehemiah quotes Deuteronomy 30 here. Back to God and says, you wrote this. You told us this. Something just to point out. This is a sub point in this, in this message, you guys. Nehemiah knows the scriptures. Nehemiah knows what the word of God says. And he quotes it back to God. You have said this. He's read the scriptures. He is simply praying for God to do what he has promised to do. Do you realize that's something we should be doing, church? Reading the scriptures. Praying those things. In context. You can't take a promise to Israel and pray it over your life directly and say like, oh, he said he was going to make them rich and wealthy and happy and all that. Okay, God, do it in my life, right? Don't cross your arms and do this thing. You guys know what I'm talking about. There's a few people that know. Okay, but you guys, uh, let me me share this this quote with you because the question that I, I have to ask us is, do we pray like this? Do we pray the scriptures? Are we praying that God's Word would come to life, would come true in our lives. Donald Whitney in his book, Praying the Bible, which you can have a free copy of. They're on the table out there for this series. Uh, There's copies, one per household to start, if you don't mind, just so we make sure everyone gets one. But he wrote this amazing book called Praying the Bible. He writes 
this about using the scriptures to shape our prayers, or in Nehemiah's case, not only praying directly from the scriptures, but asking God to simply do what he said he will do, and that he would use him, Nehemiah, to do it. He says this regarding the scriptures shaping our prayers. By this means, by praying the scriptures, by reading the scriptures and praying those to God, the spirit of God will use the word of God to help the people of God pray increasingly according to the will of God. That's a powerful quote. And here's the way we do that. We read the Bible and we let that give language to our prayers. We're not taking out of context and applying things to ourselves that don't apply to us. We read it within context. But we're using the language of scriptures to populate the language of our prayers. And in Nehemiah's case, this is a direct promise from God that he will fulfill for his people. And so he prays it back to him. God, do what you said you'll do. I'm ready. Humbly confessing my sin. I'm ready for you to work. All prayers should be grounded in the truth of God's word. That doesn't make them rigid and not conversational either. It doesn't mean you're going to use a lot of thee, thou, and thy. It doesn't mean that you're going to pontificate. You guys, what it means is that they're going to be raw and real and vulnerable. Don't believe me? Read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. The psalmist is praying to God, and he is pretty raw about it. So much so that it's hard for us to navigate sometimes. Can I, can I pray that? Well, we should talk about imprecatory prayers before we get down that road, but that's for another sermon. That's praying for demise on people. You guys, who is this prayer about? Notice something very important about what Nehemiah prays here in verse 10. Before you read it, you have to consider this. Before we understand it fully, we have to know this. Who is this prayer about? Is this about Nehemiah? I mean, Nehemiah's praying it. You're like, well, it's kind of about his life. You know, he's pretty big career change here. Is it about him? Look at verse 10. They, speaking of the Israelites, are your servants, your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Who's this prayer about? You can say it. This prayer is about God. This prayer is about God's will being done and Nehemiah's willingness to be the man who does it. God, your will needs to be done. Will you send me to do it? Will you allow me to be the one who does it? Our petition, scripturally shaped, is about God's glory. When we pray, when you pray humbly, confessing sin and you make your petition to God is it scripturally shaped and for his glory when you pray are you praying that the word of God would take root that you would treasure in your heart that you wouldn't sin against him that it would shape you and glorify him in the process we're going to get into this in just a minute but this brings up some pretty scary questions church I don't know if you realize that. We'll talk about it in a minute. Our petition has to be spoken with the desire that God receives the glory. Always. When we set our eyes on him receiving the glory, 
we can actually pray the way Paul encourages us to in Philippians 4, 6. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. You don't have to worry about anything. In everything, you just pray. You come to the Lord. If we are set on him receiving the glory, if that is the goal of our prayer, not me getting what I want, not me dictating to others what I wish they would do, but that God would be glorified. That's our goal. Last characteristic is this. We see Nehemiah's commissioning, and this gets sticky. Verse 11 says this, as he's continuing to pray, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. And it says, at the time I was the king's cupbearer, there's the man. And he says, this man, he's talking about the king. He's got to go to the king. If you know chapter two, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We know what success in Nehemiah's heart was by reading chapter two. He was called to go build the wall around Jerusalem and rejuvenate the people there and provide leadership for them. As a king's cupbearer, he already knew what it was like to take risk. I don't know if you know this, but the cupbearer would make sure the wine wasn't poisoned. Nehemiah was the one who was poison checking everything. Now, I do it jokingly to all my kids' stuff. But his job was for real. It was for real for him. You guys, we need to make a bold request of the Lord. And Nehemiah comes to God and entrusts his life to him. And this is just the beginning of his commissioning. This is entrusting his life to the Lord as he comes to before the king and makes his request. But it's also the commissioning that will send him out of Persia, Babylon, but Persian control Babylon, and back home again. Do we trust the Lord to accomplish what he desires in and through our lives? Or, this is the, the question I've been wrestling with all week, do we struggle to pray according to his will because we're pretty convinced that he might ask us to do something we really don't want to do? This affects in a massive way, the effectiveness of our prayer lives. I think a lot of us are holding back because we're scared. And let me just project myself onto you guys. I say that because of myself. I am scared to pray for some things. And I need to not be afraid. But in everything, I need to come to the Lord with no fear, as Paul says in Philippians 4, 6. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The mindset that we come to the Lord with will greatly impact how we pray. If that fear is there, if that hesitancy of God actually, you know, it's interesting because it's, it's almost like we have a Jonah complex. You guys know what I'm talking about? God calls Jonah, Jonah runs. Eaten by big fish. Prays in the belly of the fish, barfed onto the shore. God calls Jonah again. Jonah goes, end of story. You wish it was, but it's not. Why? Because Jonah doesn't get it right still. He does the right thing, but with the wrong heart. And Jonah goes and proclaims the word of God to all these people in Nineveh, and they listen. Doggone them. And Jonah gets really upset about it. Why? Because he didn't want them to. 
And we look at that and we're like, wow, prophet of God, this guy was so messed up. He like leads all these people to this, this massive like, you know, repentance to God. And they do exactly what, you know, the Lord's heart is. And somehow it's not Jonah's heart. And so he throws a fit. He gets mad. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Kill me. Right now. Forget it. I'm not, I'm not your prophet anymore. Yeah, you've never done that. God has never done something in your life that you were like, you told me to be faithful. I did it, and it just didn't work out. According to who? Me. Takes us right back. Uh-oh, Nate's closing his Bible. <laughs> you guys, is that how we're praying? Is that how we're being commissioned? I'll go with one little stipulation. You do what I say, God. Ooh. What does the scripture say about our prayer life in this direction of how we're actually praying and what we're willing to do for God? God wants our hearts aligned with his. Don't forget that. Humility, confession, petition. It begins with humble confession so that it aligns our hearts. If we skip that step and we just try and go do what God's calling us to do, do you really think it's going to work out well? Eventually you're going to be like, wait a minute, you were supposed to burn all these people. What? His heart wasn't aligned with God. You're like, that's a horrible thing to say. It's what he wanted. You know what's crazy is if we actually put ourselves in Jonah's shoes, by the way, did not plan about talking about Jonah today. If you put yourself in Jonah's shoes, you would probably feel the same way. If you had watched your people be tormented by another nation, tortured by them, flayed alive and drug into slavery, how would you feel about them? And yet God says, I want to show mercy. Align your heart with mine. You let me deal with that. God brought the judgment on the Assyrians later. This wasn't the time for that. Jonah needed to get on board with that program because it was God's plan. Here's how this affects how we pray now. James 4.3, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Do you want to know it's affecting our prayer lives greatly? Sin, okay, it's way too basic. Let me go a little bit deeper. Your heart is not aligned. You need to go back to characteristic number one, two, and three. You need to go back again. I need to go back again. That's what's going on for us, church. Are my prayers ineffective because of my motives? Am I praying wrongly? Sometimes God is just causing us to wait. Sometimes he's not moving because I'm, I'm not aligned with him. I'm praying for the wrong thing. I'm praying selfishly. I didn't take to heart that quote from Andrew Murray. I need to let the will of God displace my selfishness. I need to allow what he wants to do in this world to displace my personal comfort. Maybe even because of my fear or distrust of God and what he might do, have my prayers been hindered? That's a question to ask. Do I distrust what he'll do? Am I afraid that he's going to take me somewhere I really don't want to go? Send me anywhere but there. Have me talk to anyone but that person. Give me any family but this one. My prayers have been ineffective, church. 
for these reasons. I've prayed wrongly. I've prayed wrongly for the Lord to work in my family. I've prayed wrongly for the Lord to work in other people's lives. I've done this. I've literally thought back through this last week, studying this text, and thought of times where I prayed for people and it was all about me. It was all about what I wanted. Oh, but my motives are so good, God. You don't understand. Whenever you put your palms out like I just did, bend your knees a little bit and say, God, you don't understand. (laughs) Just imagine you're watching yourself do it. That'll handle it. (laughs) Because you immediately see God, our good father, look at us and say, yes, I do. Yes, I do understand. You don't understand me. You don't understand what he desires to do and how he's going to do it. From our text this morning, church, we learn a powerful way to calibrate our motives before we make our petition and our commission by God. Nehemiah's example in this prayer is an amazing example to follow. God did incredible things in Nehemiah's life. Read the rest of the account. Read the rest of the historical account. It's powerful. But it started here in exile. It started here in this place of him humbly confessing his sin, allowing that to calibrate his heart, And then he makes his petition and seeks for God's glory by stepping forward to do what he's been commissioned to do. We have to trust God to protect and provide us on that road. It was a dangerous road. In that setting, you think Nehemiah's troubles were done after he got the prayer part right? They were just beginning. He hadn't even met Samballot yet. Or Tobiah or Geshem. You're like, who? Just read the story. Nehemiah's life gets threatened in this story. He is hated by some people in the region. He is attacked. At one point, they're building a wall with one hand and holding a sword with another. This road is going to get real tough. We are not going to be prepared for it unless we pray. Unless we are people who pray humbly, confessing, requesting, and being sent. Worship team, come on up. This morning, we're going to share a song with you guys that's written um, that encompasses all these characteristics. Um, this song is written from, as a response song for the church, recognizing what happened in Nehemiah chapter 1 and how we can learn from it. And um, my prayer is that the song would become one that ministers to you in a powerful way that speaks to you allows you and gives you language to praise and worship the lord from a text of scripture before we do that um i want to give you guys an opportunity because i think that we need to take time for prayer when we're talking about prayer and maybe this can be a time of just humbling ourselves before the lord you are god i am not maybe it's a time for confession of sin lord this is something that i've I've done, I've felt, I've been thinking, and I just confess that as sin to you. Maybe you want to request something of God. Maybe you want to make a petition. Lord, would you send me to do this or enable me to do this? And A commissioning of being sent out to do that. Making the request and then the sending being his to do. Let's take a few moments as we prepare to sing and um, just quietly reflect. Just quietly reflect and Let's put these things into practice. Let's humbly confess. Let's make our request of God. And let's seek for him to send us into what he has called us to do.
Lord, as we take this time, I just pray you quiet our hearts. Uh, that we would be humble before you, Lord. That we would begin there. We would apply what we've studied this morning. We would learn. And God, I pray that as we sing this song to you, that it would just be um, a genuine expression of our hearts and in musical worship to you. Let's take some time. Let's keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed.